We are in the Gospel of Mark, and man, I am enjoying presenting this to you. I hope you're getting half as much out of it as I am getting from it. We are so glad that you're here and studying it. Uh, Shelly's going to come up and read our scripture this morning. If the singing this morning uh, got your heart ready to receive the Word of God, say, I'm ready. I'm ready. Yeah, let's get ready to receive the Word. Here, Shelly, I got a microphone for you right here. It's good to see Penny Skolton in the house. Good job, Penny. There we go. All right. All right. You can follow along on the screen as Shelly reads for us. Thank you, Shelly. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priest and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in, his, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed." when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you. Appreciate that. This is a passage that is just packed full of stuff, and I just pray that I uh, can do it justice because the Lord said a ton in these few verses. So we're going to do that right now. We're going to pray and ask God to help us. So Father, show us the things that we cannot see on our own, Help us to understand the things that our brains cannot do and comprehend on our own. May the Holy Spirit of God reveal to us what you need us to see this morning, that we would each be able to take up our cross and follow you. And all God's people said, amen. So there is a tribe in Africa that has perfected the way of capturing, capturing monkeys. And what they do is they take a coconut and they carve a small hole out in it. And then they put a piece of fruit just big enough to go into that hole inside of that coconut. And then they tie that coconut to like a tree and connect the two. And the monkey will stick its hand in to get the fruit. But because its hand wrapped around the fruit is too big to get back out of the coconut, it gets stuck there. And the monkey is so stubborn that it will not let go of the fruit and get its hand out and get away. And they can walk right up and just grab the monkey because it's so stubborn. It is so selfish it is so obsessed with, I've got to have that piece of fruit that it will not let go, and it'll be trapped. And, and you know what? I don't think we're too far away. <laughs> I don't think we evolved from monkeys, but I think God created, us, created monkeys just to show us how foolish we can be sometimes, and sometimes we just won't let go. And, and what Jesus is asking us to let go of is not a small request. He's asking us to let go of us. Of our entire life. To be able to just say, here Jesus, be Lord of all. And all means all. <laughs> it's often been said that if Jesus is not Lord of, of all, he's not Lord at all. Jesus is not asking for 98%, 99%. He's, he's not asking for like ivory soap, 99.99%. He's asking for how much? 100% all. He's asking for us to give our everything. And, and again, that... That is what this monkey doesn't want to do. We don't want to let go. We want to be in control of our lives. We want Jesus to be part of our life, and then we run it all, you know, and then he just, he's our little helper that helps us get through life, and whenever we need help on the job, help with our marriage, grandma's sick, whatever, we ask God to be our little helper and step in, but we really, we think we're the ones in control. 
Jesus started off saying, teaching them that the Son of Man, which the Son of Man is the phrase that Jesus used about himself more than any other title. It sounds like in our Western thinking that that's like a demotion. Wait, it's Son of God, Son of Man. No, no, no. If you read the book of Daniel, the Son of Man is the Ancient of Days. It is God Almighty becoming human flesh. Okay, so that, that title, Son of Man, rocked the Pharisees' world. They're like, what? You're claiming to be the one that Daniel prophesied of? You know, and they just like, that's why they wanted to kill him, and we'll talk about that more. But he said that he must suffer many things. Not that he's going to, and there's bad things coming down the road, and it's just going to happen. He's like, no, this is why I came. It's for this very purpose, and these things must happen. They must happen, first of all, because the world needs a Savior, and there is no other way. Remember when Jesus started his ministry, Satan tempted him in many different ways, and one of them was, hey, hey, here's the kingdoms of the world. Just bow down and worship me. And he was offering the kingdoms and a crown without a cross. And that, that's the shortcut that many religions try to take, is they, they want to offer you everything without the cross. And Jesus is like, no, I can't bypass the cross. The cross is what I came here. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. The very purpose. He said, this must happen because the world needs a Savior. Number two, because the Old Testament prophesied that that's what the Messiah would do. What Jews had a really hard time was with is imagine if you're looking way out in the distance and you see two mountaintops. And they appear to be side by side. And because you're maybe hundreds of miles away, it looks like they're side by side, but really, they're like this, and there's a great distance between the two, but you can't tell from your perspective. And so when they looked down the road through prophecy in the Old Testament, they saw a suffering servant, but they also saw a conquering king. And that's what clearly Isaiah, Hosea, Malachi, they all prophesied about these two types of messiahs. But think about this. If you're under Roman occupation and you're being taxed to death, you're being treated brutally, you've been stripped of all your national pride and everything is just bad, which Messiah are you wanting to come now? You want the conquering king. But Jesus said, no, no, I can't be the conquering king until I'm first the suffering servant. I will suffer and die. I will come first, as we sang, as the lamb. Later he's coming as what, people? The lion. And he's not going to be passive when he returns. And like I said, when you watch the news and you see the arrogance of world leaders, even in our own country, and you think about the king of kings coming and setting them all straight, and then every single one of them taking a knee before him. I don't know about you, but that gets me excited. Because the Bible is about justice. And, you know, people cry about social justice and all kinds of things, but they have no concept of what the Bible's justice is. And... Uh, and then before I get too much on them being so pompous, I have to look in the mirror and realize he, that justice would be coming for me except for one thing. Jesus took my justice on the cross. So the wrath of God's not going to be poured out on Gary. And if you know Jesus Christ, the wrath of God's not going to be poured on you. But it is going to be poured out and justice will come upon the evil of this world. So these things must happen. There, there's salvation no other way except that he suffer many things and he, he describes, and I watch this, he says he must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. These were like three political parties, except they have religious affiliation rather than Democrat or Republican or something like that. And these three groups didn't necessarily get along. And so usually if one person was rejected by one group, the other would say, well, no, no, we like him. Because if you're, if you're against him, I'm probably for him. If you're for him, I'm against him. So, but all three were going to be on the same page. No, we don't like this guy, Jesus. Get rid of him. And then he must be killed. Okay, Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. And then he predicts his own resurrection after three days. Not two, not a few, not four or five, but exactly three days, I'm going to rise again. Now, if any one of these didn't come true, that would make Jesus a false prophet. But every single one came true. And, and, and we're, we're actually just a few months away from all this happening. And so Jesus wasn't just getting lucky with this prediction. He's saying three, three groups of people who don't like each other are all going to come together, reject me. They're going to kill me. But guess what? I'm going to rise again. Amen? So he, he makes it very clear. And he, says, and he, and he said this plainly. And the reason Mark says this is because prior to this, 
it wasn't so plain. Jesus was, how did Jesus talk to people? How did he teach people? In parables. And he was being purposely, I don't want to say aloof, and I don't want to say vague could be the word, but he's trying to make it even somewhat cryptic because he wants people to step up and to see. You know, and, and I'll illustrate that here in just a little bit, but he, he spoke this plainly. Jesus purposely spoke in parables. In fact, Matthew 13, 3 says, and he told them many things in parables. It wasn't just something he did occasionally. We see, I, I probably should have looked this up, but there's, there's, there's dozens and dozens of parables in our Gospels. But that was just some of what Jesus taught. It says he was constantly teaching in parables. You know, one of them was the sower, went out to sow. In Matthew 13, the same chapter, verse 34, it says, all these things Jesus said to them, to the crowd in parables. In fact, at one point in his ministry, not always, but at this point in his ministry, Matthew says, from this point forward, he didn't say anything else unless it was a parable. Constantly speaking in code, okay? And, he's, and he, there's a reason why he's doing it. In, Mark, in Matthew 13, 10, it says, Then the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And here's the answer. Let Jesus tell us why. He answered, To you, you believers in me, you have been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. What's not been given? The secrets of the kingdom of heaven. So he's purposely putting things in a secretive way of talking. He's not just coming right out and saying, Hey, I'm God. And here's everything clear and plain. He purposely made it to where people, where the cookies were up on the higher shelf, if you will, okay? He says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not understand. Now, here's what's fascinating about this. A couple weeks ago, Jesus healed a man who was deaf and mute, right? Then he says to the disciples, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And they're like, what? Did we forget to buy bread? Peter, come on. I told you to buy bread. Why didn't you buy bread? You know, and they're like, and Jesus like, why are you discussing about who didn't bring bread? It's not what I'm talking about. Beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Herodians. And then what does Jesus do after that? He heals a blind man. And what does he say in the middle of it all? Hearing, you don't hear. I just healed a deaf man, mute man. And seeing you don't see, I just healed a blind man. It's like bookends of miracles to prove his point. And Jesus was always doing those things. When you read your Bible this week, look for those kind of things. They're, they're all over the place. In fact, I learned a new word last year. Um, you know, we talk about chiasm all the time, but let me give you a new one. Pericope. Have you heard pericope? How many learned about pericopes in English grammar class? Okay. Anyway, uh, that makes two of us. Okay. So um, a pericope is where you say something. And then your main point's in the middle. It's like a chiasm, but it's small. It's like A-B-A. And Mark does these all the time, and many times they overlap. But he does these with the miracles. He does all kinds of things. Um, so he said, for this people's heart has grown dull. This is why Jesus is speaking in parables, because people's hearts are hardened. They're like, Jesus, can you get past the teaching? Just give us some more fish and bread. Jesus, you know, okay, great. Thanks for the teaching on the kingdom. That was cool, but my brother needs to walk. You know, and they were just all about the show, the, the, the horse and pony show, just everything about tricks and magic. And they just wanted to see a show and get some free food. He says, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Now notice how their eyes are closed. Who closed them? He didn't say, their eyes I have closed. No. What does he say? Their eyes they have closed. True story. A, a friend of mine, Dr. Carl Baugh, he runs the Creation Evidence Museum up in Glen Rose, Texas. You go up to Glen Rose, Texas, and you can see this creation museum up there. It's a much smaller one than the ones uh, up in uh, Kentucky. But anyway, um, but it's pretty cool. I've been there myself. I took a youth group there. And there's a dinosaur footprint about as wide as this, okay, clear as could be. And right in the middle of it is a human footprint, about like a size 16 foot, right in the middle of that dinosaur footprint. Right there, kept in the fossil record, right there, proving dinosaurs and humans lived at the same time. And there's no way that could have happened. And, and that's not just one. They're all over the place in Glen Rose, Texas. And Dr. Carl Ball, he, he met with this evolutionist scientist and took him on a tour. He said, I want to show you this footprint. And he showed the guy. And the guy was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that still doesn't disprove anything. And he's like, yeah, but look at it. And the guy would not even look at it. 
And he believes the guy wouldn't even look at it because he could walk away and say, well, I didn't see anything. Even though he knew it was like right there. He just kind of like glanced over. And, and, and you know what? People willingly just close their eyes. Like, don't confuse me with the facts. I know what I know. I want to do what I want to do. You know, and, and then there's people just, they just have their own way of doing things and they won't let go of what's inside the coconut. He says, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And, you know, if they actually opened their eyes, they would see. If they actually would open up their ears, they would hear some things. They'd hear some amazing things. And what would I do? I would, I, and they understand with their heart, I would heal them. But they want nothing of it. They, they're being stubborn. So how, how do you find someone who is serious about it? Let, let's, say, let's say you were single again, okay? And some of you are still single, okay? And let's say... You were, this was your first time um, coming to a church. And yeah, you have in the back of your mind that, man, it'd be really na- nice if I met a godly person here and got married and, and just and, and enjoyed a life together serving the Lord. That would be really cool. Would you walk into the church and say, hey, everybody, I'm single. I'm looking to find a good-looking girl and have relations and have babies. Any takers? Would you be that forward? <laughs> Would you be that direct? No, of course not. And yet people want Jesus to be that direct. But if you really want someone to love you, what do you want them to do? Take time to get to know you. You don't just walk up and say, hi, my name's Gary. I'm looking to get married. You look pretty. Are you interested? <laughs> you, you would not be that direct. I didn't try that on Tammy. Okay. Oh, we, we would not be that way. But yet somehow the crowd is wanting Jesus to be that way. And Jesus is like, wait a minute. No, I came here to see who loves me. I'm not just going to walk in and say, hey, I'm God. You need to bow down and worship me, and let, I'm going to just be that direct. He, he did it through miracles. He did it through signs. He did it mostly through his teaching. And people were, what about, I want what I want. Because guess what? If, if a guy or a girl was that direct about what their intentions were, they're going to get a lot of takers real fast. And they will not be able to separate the good guys and the good girls from the good guys and the bad girls. Okay. You see, you're able to separate the two. Who is really genuine about this by, and it's not really playing hard to get because playing hard to get is like being deceptive. It's acting like you're not interested, okay? It just means you just don't show all your cards the first time. Um, so Jesus is not playing hard to get, he's, but he, he's not being as direct as they want because what he's asking for is faith. Now, faith is not blind. People use the word f- blind faith, but that's not what it is. It does mean that we believe in things we cannot see, okay, for example, like gravity, like love, like justice. These are things you can't see but you know are true. No human eye has ever seen a neutron or a proton, but we know they're there. The science backs it up, okay, but we know because we have facts that will help us to see with things that our eyes cannot see, but we see with our understanding. So, Jesus is separating those who are open to the truth from those who are not. Let me ask you a question. Are you open to the truth? You say, okay, yeah, of course I am. I'm here in church. No, no, I, no, really. Are you open to the truth even if it hurts? Even if it means you're going to have to let go of something that you've been holding on to. Um, there is a, uh, I've watched a video about this guy, this Dr. Zaire Naik. He's kind of like um, an apologist for Islam. He's kind of like, I hesitate to even say this, but he's kind of like what Ravi Zacharias was for Christianity. He travels around the world defending Islam and showing why Islam is superior to Christianity. And he made this statement, Jesus never claimed that he is God. And technically, technically those exact words, I am God, Jesus did not say. Okay? But Again, is Jesus being that direct, walking into the room, saying, hey, I want to get married and have babies. Are you interested? He's not being that direct. He's purposely trying to separate those who are truly genuine and open to the truth and those who are not. But let's just see what Jesus did say, okay? Jesus says in Matthew 8, John 8, 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, what is he saying there? Moses stood before the burning bush, which everybody knows is God. Muslims know the burning bush was God. They believe that story of Moses. And Moses says, you know, he's bowing down before God and says, who should I tell Pharaoh to send me? And he says, I am that I am. And Jesus says, hey, before even Abraham, which is before Moses, I am. Now, did he say, I am God? Well, you use the phrase, I am. You're saying, 
I am God. But again, Jesus is not being that direct because if he's leaving the door open, or if you really don't want to believe in him, you could technically say, okay, he didn't say it, so I'm not going to follow it. But here's the thing. If he actually even said it, there are people who would find reasons to reject him anyway. So he, but let's just keep going here. Um, this, John 5, 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. And read the blue words with me. Making himself equal with God. You see, people today are like, oh, Jesus never said that. Man, the Jews knew Jesus was saying, I'm God. That's why they wanted to stone him. Several times they wanted to stone him. And Jesus, being Jesus, was able to get out of it until the timing was right, and they let him kill him on his time. Because Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I freely lay it down. Let's keep going with this theme here. John 10.30, he says, I and the Father are one. Is the Father God? And Jesus, yes, and if Jesus is saying, I'm one with the Father, he's claiming to be God. And so this concept of the Trinity, which again was not real crystal clear in the Old Testament, on purpose, Jesus is making crystal clear in the New Testament that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So why, when he said that, what did the Jews do? Picked up stones to kill him. Why? Because he's claiming to be God. Well, some people explain this way and say, well, Jesus is just saying that you know, he's kind of one with the Father, like we're one with the universe, and we could be one with the Father as well. No, no, no. That's, that's not what he's saying at all. People, they would not have stoned him for just saying, I, me and God are close. No, he's saying that I am God is what he's saying. But again, he's saying it in, in code on purpose to separate those who have ears to hear from those who don't. So why do we as humans not accept the lordship of Jesus in our lives? The Jews would not accept the fact that Jesus was God. And here's the reality. We as human beings, everything within us screams against it. Everything inside of us is like, I am my own God. I am my own boss. I am a self-made man. Choose your destiny. I am going to make my future. I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I'm going to do all these things. This is what every human heart cries, and every part of it is sin. We admire it many times in many people's uh, their, their successful accomplishments, but if they did it all for the glory of self, what good is it? What good is it to be Elon Musk if you don't acknowledge it's God that gave you the talents to make all those billions? What, what good is it to be Bill Gates or, or to be anybody in this world if you're not acknowledging that it's God who gave you the strength and the power to do that? Who's being glorified in a situation? Is that why God created us? To glorify ourselves? And before we point fingers at them, really, it's us. We do the same thing. You know, if you, if you were to make a list uh, of the most satanic songs, okay, who, who would come to mind? Marilyn Manson, yes. Who else would come to mind? ACDC, yeah, go, go on old school there. Who else? Corn, yeah, all these kinds, okay. Would Frank Sinatra come to mind? No? But I guarantee you, when he sings, I did it my way. I don't know how I can get any worse than that. When Lucifer said, I want to be like the Most High, I think he was freaking singing like Frank Sinatra way before Frank Sinatra. Like, I'm going to do it my way, my way. God's like, no, you know, <laughs> lightning like a heaven, boom, go down to earth, Okay? But we all do it. We, we are, we are all, there's something inside of us that just says, no, 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 you're not going to control me. You're not going to do that. You know, whenever you enter into a loving relationship, in order to truly enjoy that marriage or that father-son or mother-daughter or parent-child relationship, any loving relationship, you've got to give up rights. You do. You know, if, if I am going somewhere to work and I'm doing things, but then I'm stuck in traffic, I need to make a phone call and say, hey, I'm going to be late for dinner. You know? And, and if I, I can't just say, you know what? I think I'll just go stop by you know, Academy and just look around and shop for a few hours, show up at 9 o'clock at night, and Tammy's like, where you been? Say, hey, you're not my boss. No, she's not. I'm not her boss. But a loving relationship submits to one another. And that's what the illustration, that's why in every loving relationship, we have to submit to one another, as Ephesians 5 tells us to do, and it's a picture 
of us in a loving relationship with God. We have to submit to him in how much? How much? Everything. And yet there's something deep inside of us that we just don't like it. We cringe. And I'm talking about even believers. John 3, 19 says, and this is the judgment. Light, who is the light? Jesus has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light. And why do people scurry about like cockroaches when the light comes on? Because their deeds are evil. Their works are evil. The reason people reject God, reject the Bible, and I'm talking about even Christians, it's because they've got something over here that is evil that they do not want to let go of. They can come up with all kinds of philosophical things and, and oh, I just trust the science and I'm a humanist, I'm an atheist, I'm whatever, and you can't prove this. And they come up with all kinds of intellectual debates, but the real agenda is I've got something over here that I'm hiding that I do not want God to tell me to stop doing. This is, a, this is the piece of fruit I am not letting go of. And that's the reality. Uh, Aldous Huxley was a, a humanist in the 1940s and 50s, a great writer, and uh, and people looked up to him. He changed Western education in the universities dramatically. And he was one of the ones kind of formulating thought in, in the academic world in a big way. And he was a humanist. And he was an atheist technically, but he believed in a spiritual world, but not in a god. That makes sense. He believed in metaphysical things, but not any deity. So technically he was an atheist and a humanist. And here's what he said. The reason he chose his lifestyle, he was... And pat him on the back for honesty, okay? He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. Okay? If you believe the Bible, you have meaning. You're created with a purpose. Okay? And, and uh, you know, all this going on today with all the LGBT and transgender and all that stuff, we're all so fixated on our sexual preferences, we're forgetting about our sexual purpose. It's not about your preference, it's about your purpose. What did God create you for? If he created you a girl, that means he created you to be in a loving relationship to make babies and to have a husband who represents Jesus Christ and you represent the church. We need to be about our sexual purposes, not our sexual preferences. You don't choose what you are. God made you what you are. But I'm off course here. Here we go. He says, for I had motives for wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the, in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem of pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. Good for him for being honest, but it, it gets more detailed here. He said, for myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaningless was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. He's being honest with it. He says the supporters of this system claim that it embodied the meaning, the, meaning, the Christian meaning they insisted of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confusing these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatever. That's what it is. The whole agenda behind evolution versus creation, atheism versus Christianity, anything like that, it's not about, oh, I'm just trusting the science. I don't see a God, and therefore I, I see the evidence here in creation. I see the evidence uh, in, the, in the fossil record, and I, all this stuff, and they just say, I just trust science. What no, no, no. The Bible says that the law of God is written upon every man's heart. Ecclesiastes says eternity is in our souls. There is something deep inside of everyone that knows there's something bigger outside of you, not just something, but someone bigger outside of you. And it takes all kinds of brainwashing in the universities to convince you that there's not a God. And you're willing to believe that because you want to do what you want to do. You want to sleep with who you want to sleep with, when you want to do it, you want to do that. And it's something that how so much of this revolves around sexuality. And that's what they're pushing on us right now. And we've got male swimmers beating women in sports. And everybody's like, yay, how courageous. I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? This swimmer was ranked 415th in the world amongst men, goes, transfers to be a woman, all of a sudden wins first place in the college 
swimming competition, and we're like, how courageous. That's baloney. It is baloney. And, and I, I, I was having a discussion with someone who was all for this, and they're like, no, no, no. It's, see, when you, when you transition, your testosterone comes down, and your testosterone is the same as other women. Maybe, maybe not. But guess what? Your shoulders are still broader. Your hands are still bigger. Your arms are still longer. Your legs are still longer. Everything you swim with is still better. This is, this is beyond ridiculous. I mean, if you had told, if you could go back in a time machine and tell your grandparents, hey, when we, when we, in the day that we live in, men are going to change their identity and compete against women in sports, and everybody's going to say, yeah, wow, look at you, here's a trophy. And your parents are like, well, you're making this up. You can't be any more stupid than this. And I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be, sound um, insensitive, but we are just turning the world upside down. And see, the reason it's all about sexuality is because we are created in whose image? God. God is the creator. That's why it's, it's so important. The very first thing that's most important about God is he's the creator. If we knock that down, all the other dominoes fall. Okay? So God is the creator, and he created us in his image. And what do we have the ability to do? Procreate. We can make babies. And that, if there isn't something more miraculous than that, than a man and a woman coming together and having intimate relationships, and it produces life, and you see this baby, and you're like, is there anything more fascinating than that? And if Satan can destroy that whole picture, he destroys the gospel. Because that's the gospel. That Jesus Christ enters into us and gives us new life, and the new life is, comes forth. And there's nothing more beautiful than that. And when you look at Caleb or, or Evangeline, you're like, look what God does. This is a beautiful picture of what God does. And this is just in the physical world. When someone accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior, it's this. It's this beautiful baby. By the way, Evangeline, over this morning, uh, Ashley's holding her, and the song's gone. Evangeline's like, she's already got her hand up. I'm like, go, girl. It's beautiful. It's really about their agenda. And here's where I want to get really real with you, okay? You know people who say, oh, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist or whatever, agnostic, Okay. Love them, please, okay? Don't take my passion here as hatred for them. It's not. I hate that Satan is blinding their eyes. It's what I hate, okay? And we need to love them. But don't get caught up in all these different arguments about this and that and evolution, whatever. Ask them this tough question. Is there something in your life that makes you not want to think that there is a God? Just get down to the brass tacks where the rubber meets the road. Because I guarantee you there's something in their lifestyle that they don't want to let go of because if, if they knew there was a God, they can't hold on to this and God at the same time. God's going to make them, God will force them to make a choice. 2 Timothy 3, 2 describes this generation more than anything. For people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, the list goes on. I, I just shortened it here. And here's the thing, verse 7, read it orange with me. Always learning. What, what does Paul say about knowledge? Knowledge puffs up. And we've got to, we live, you know, I, I think it was Isaiah asked me the other day, you know, and we had the Ice Age, we had medieval times, we had all these different names for different ages. What, what is the age we live in? I think we still call this the information age. We have access to more information via the internet than any generation before us. And yet we are stupid. We've got a billion facts in our head and no common sense. Seriously, no common sense whatsoever. We've thrown it all out the window, and it's all about now our feelings. What do you feel like you should do? What do you, who do you feel like you are? You know, you can identify as whatever you want because that's the way you feel. Forget the science. Just it's all about your feelings. And we've got so much information, but we have no wisdom. There's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. And he says, he says they're always learning. More degrees, more degrees. You want a promotion, you need to get another degree. You need to get a doctorate. You get multiple doctorates, all that stuff. And yet we are the most ignorant generation when it comes to the things of God. He says, and they're never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. And see, that's another thing that our education system has said now very clearly. There's no such thing as absolute truth. And my question for them is, is that statement absolutely true? Really? I mean, it, nothing's absolute. Two plus two can be whatever you want now. Why do we have, we say we believe in the science and we believe in math, 
But all of a sudden, when it comes to the supernatural, oh, no, it's whatever you think. Find your own truth is what the world teaches us to do. No, there is not your own truth. There, Jesus said, I am the truth. And you accept him, and he made very exclusive statements. He didn't say all religions are good. All of them are different paths up the same mountaintop. You know, he makes it super abundantly clear that the truth is him, and we need to know him, but people are gaining information, but not the knowledge of the truth. So he said this plainly. So Jesus finally sets aside the parables, the code, the vagaries, and he says, please. And so Peter, you know, takes his foot out of his mouth and takes Jesus aside, and he began to rebuke him. Wow, <laughs> that's pretty tough. It's interesting because the same word rebuke was Jesus had rebuked the spirits, he rebuked the demons, but now Peter's rebuking the Lord who did all the rebuking. It's kind of an interesting turnaround there. He said, but, this is interesting, turning, Jesus is turning and seeing his disciples. So Peter goes, come here, Jesus, I need to talk to you. Come on over here. I, I know all this cross stuff. I know that it sounds really good in poetry, but that's not the kind of Messiah we need right now. If you die, how's this revolution going to end? I mean, we, we're, we can't do this without you. You can't die. And Jesus is like looking at him and then looks at the, looks at the disciples. And, and this is my theory on this. It's like, if, if you're going to rebuke me in front of them, I'm going to have to come back at you in front of them. Because I see them, and this, you're being a bad influence on them. And maybe they were the ones who put Peter up to asking the question. Who knows? I don't know. And he says, and he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me. Okay? He didn't say, get out of my face. He said, get behind me. Get back in line, Peter. I'm the leader, if you haven't noticed. You're not the leader. Get back in line. Get behind me. And he says, get behind me, Satan. And since you actually asked this question a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, I don't know, I've lost track of time. So there, there's a different views on what this word Satan could mean. Okay, first of all, not, not what it means. The word Satan means the hinderer or the obstacle or, there's another word I'm not thinking about right now. Um, and, and it's all the accuser. It's someone who gets in between and gets in your way and won't let you go somewhere and they're trying to stop you. So let's talk about what, why did Jesus call him Satan? There's three ideas. Number one, Peter was in the moment possessed by Satan. Some people teach that. I don't believe that is the case. I, I believe that Peter is a follower of Christ and cannot be possessed. He could be oppressed and influenced by a demon but I don't, or a Satan, but I don't think he could be possessed. Him. I don't know that I would buy that theory right there. The second one is that he's speaking for Satan or Satan is speaking through him. And that, that's, what, that's the most popular view on this. And it's not a bad view. I, I, I can't speak with it as absolute certainty. Or he is a Satan. And in the language, it's Hasatan. Hasatan. It means the Satan. Okay? So if I said, you know, here's Stan, but if I say the Stan, that wouldn't make any sense. That, that's not personal. If I say the Stan, that's a generic sense, right? But if I say, here's Stan, then I'm talking about his name, proper name. So if it's the Satan, it means just like the chair. It's one amongst many. Now, is Satan a, there, is there a Satan? Yes. You know, Lucifer, whatever you want to call him, and even the title Lucifer is, it has about a light analogy. It, what's, what's interesting in the Bible is it talks about our names are written down in heaven. And it talks about, we even say today, make a name for yourself, go out in the world and make a name for yourself. And in medieval times, the, the peasants, their names weren't even written down in, in the city registry. If you became a person of influence, then they wrote your name down as someone that we count in the city. Peasants, we don't count them. They're just like counting dogs, you know. But if you made a name for yourself, they actually wrote you down in the city registry and you were, you were registered as a person of name, okay? And what's so interesting is, when the rich man dies, the guy who here on earth made a name for himself, Jesus doesn't even give him a name. But the peasant who sat at his gates begging for food is called Lazarus. Do you see what Jesus is doing there? You really want to make a name for yourself, trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, and then your name is written down in the book of life. He doesn't even give the rich man a name. And I believe that this evil creature who is the head of all demons, we call Satan Lucifer, I think God doesn't even give him a name. He just gives him titles. Lucifer, the dragon, all these things. He gives him a title but doesn't give him a personal name because he doesn't even recognize him. That, but that's my theory. 
Um, I believe he is one that's an obstructor. Now you say, well, Gary, can you prove that? I'm glad you asked. So in, uh, in Numbers 22, 22, it says, but God's anger was kindled because he went and the angel of the Lord, is the angel of the Lord a good guy or a bad guy? He's a good guy, okay? In fact, I would interpret this as Jesus, that the angel of the Lord is Jesus. It's what's called a Christophany. It's an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Anyway, the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. So Balaam is riding his donkey down the path. He's going to go curse Israel. The angel of the Lord gets in his way as his adversary. And guess what the Hebrew word, because the Hebrew word and the Greek word are the same thing. It says as his Satan. Satan, or his Satan. So the angel of the Lord is playing the role of, of a Satan. What's a Satan? Someone who gets in the way, an obstructor. Now, if, you get, if someone goes to attack your wife and you step up and get in his way, you're an obstructor, but you're an obstructor in a good way, right? And so the angel of the Lord is doing it in a good way, but the title is still Satan, which means to get in the way. And so the evil Satan that we know, we, that we give a capital S to, is the one who's always getting in the way, trying to obstruct people from serving God. And that's exactly what the role Peter is doing here. So the Hebrew word, again, is it's, it's Satan, or we would pronounce it Satan. So Jesus is turning, he sees his disciples, he rebukes Peter, says, get behind me, get back in line, you obstructor, okay? Or you could take the, the road that Satan, Lucifer, is speaking through you, either way. For, here, because, here's why I'm calling you that. You are not setting your mind on the things of God. Wow. <laughs> he opened the door pretty wide open for all of us to fit there, right? He said, you're not thinking on the things of God. What are you thinking about? You're thinking about the things of man. See, you are seeing this selfishly as you want a Messiah to kick out the Romans to lower your taxes. So you can build a bigger house and you can have more freedom and travel about and not be harassed. I am here to do a whole lot more than that. I am not here to deal with your taxes. I'm here to deal with your sin. You think you're in debt from taxes. You owe greater debt to God because of your sin. You need to focus on things from God's perspective, not yours. So having your mind on the things of man is wanting God to do things your way. And the proof of that is when people get upset, and you and I do this, we ask God to do this for us, and he doesn't, and we get mad at God. Wait a minute. Who's supposed to be in control? He is. So why would we get mad at him if he didn't do what he wanted to do? You see, God has a bigger, better plan than we can think of, and he gives us what we would ask for if we knew what he knew. But we don't know what he knows, and so we ask for things selfishly. What does James say? You have not because you ask not, or because you ask amiss to consume it upon your own flesh. Okay? We ask for things to make us happy, to take the pain away. What if the pain is what's going to drive you to your knees and pray more? What if the questioning and, and the doubts make you spend more time studying for answers in the scriptures? Don't ask God to take all those things away necessarily because many of them can be used as tools. So we need to stop asking God to do things our way. You see, having your mind on the things of God is wanting to do everything God's way. And by everything, I do mean everything that we do our marriage God's way. Many times we have the perspective of our marriage based on what our parents did, and we want to pick and choose how they did it, you know, what we like about it, and reject things we don't like, and we bring that into the marriage, and we expect it to be a certain way, and then when our spouse doesn't do it our way, we get all bent out of shape because we're so controlling. When we really need to be submitting to one another in love, and, and pleasing and serving, serving, serving. Everybody say serving. Serving one another as we serve God. You see, he says, if anyone co would come after me. And so now, let me back up a little. Verse, verse 34 at the beginning, he says, he's calling the crowd. So before he was talking to the disciples, him and, him and uh, Peter have this aside. And then he sees his disciples. He makes some teaching. But then he says, hey, crowd, come on over here. I want to talk to everybody now. He said to them, if anyone, not just my disciples, if any one of you out here in this crowd want to come after me, you, you want to be a follower of Jesus, let him do three things. Deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And it has to be in that order. 
The only way you are ever going to take up a cross is if you say no to your flesh. If you say no to what this body wants and what this body craves, and by this body, I don't just mean the flesh, the physical flesh. I'm talking about the carnal nature inside this heart. That, that when we say, you know what, Gary, you don't get what you want. You're not going to be a two-year-old who falls down on the floor and pounds the floor because you didn't get what you want. And you know, we, we don't do that anymore literally, but we sure do that on the inside, don't we? Say, oh me. <laughs> you need to deny yourself. Every morning you wake up and say, it's not about me, it's about you, Lord. What do you want? And, and there's a lot of people that just cringe when they hear that, and they're like, golly, that just sounds so suppressive. But let me tell you something. All God has asked you to do is let go of what's inside the coconut so you can open up your hand and receive a whole lot more than a piece of fruit. Okay? He wants to give you more, but you can't, he can't put more into your hands until you let go of what is in your hands. And then you need to take up your cross. Now, we abuse this phrase. We say things like, yeah, you know, I have a really tough job, but hey, that's my cross to bear. As if it's one specific thing. No, no, no. The cross kills all of you. <laughs> it, 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 and it, yes, it can be painful. Your selfish flesh is going to, let me put this on right. Your, your selfish flesh is going to cry out every day, don't do this to me. Put those nails down. Don't, don't do that to me. And you got to say, no, no flesh. You're not going to rule the day. Jesus Christ will. Because what's happened is your flesh used to be in a position before the fall where it could make good decisions. But now we live in a cursed world and we live in a sinful body that is constantly rebelling against God. So we have to tell that rebellious flesh, you can't do this. Take up the cross, put out the arms, take the nails and say, God, here I am. Use me. Not my will, but yours be done. And then you can follow Jesus. You see, we got a we got a world of Christianity here in America that say, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus, but we've not denied ourselves a thing. We've not, denied, we've not taken a single nail, but we claim to be Christ followers. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. If you hold on to it, you're going to lose your life. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels saves it. See, there's three reasons you should, you should, you should uh, deny yourself. Number one, for your own sake. You want to keep your life? Give it to Jesus. If you hold on to it, you're going to lose it. So do it for your sake. I mean, that, he, he's making it pretty clear. But he said, also do it for my sake, for, the, for Jesus Christ's sake, the one who died for you. By the way, he, he did buy you. He owns you. He paid the ultimate price for you. But here's the third level. It's not just for your sake, my sake, but for the gospel's sake. We are to give our lives to spreading the gospel. It's not just the job of missionaries. It's, it's our job, okay? And so when you see all those three rolled together, this is where, have you ever noticed so many athletes, they can score a touchdown and then point up to heaven, and they can even, you know, have, you know, uh, glory to God somewhere written on their shoes or whatever, and people are like, okay, that's cool, that's cool. But as soon as they start saying, I'm a sinner and Jesus Christ is my Savior and I, I, I'm a born-again Christian, oh, man, shut up. You shouldn't be doing that stuff, you know? Anybody can talk about God, 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 but as soon as we start talking about the gospel, that, that's when people get offended. So how do you catch a monkey? You, you appeal to its inner selfishness and its stubbornness that is not willing to let go. And, and my, my question for you this morning is, what are you holding on to? Is your career path something you're just not willing to let go of? God bless my career path. God's saying, I'm not going to bless until you let go. And when I let go, I might actually put something totally different in your hands. God, God, bless, God bless, you know, bless me with a great wife. I want her to be this way and look this way and act this way. God's like, okay, go ahead and do that all day. Or you can let go and say, God, who do you have for me? What do you have for me? What if you want me to be single for the rest of my life? The Bible talks about that. It talks about being called to singleness. We're like, oh, no, no, I can't do that. Okay, stick your hand back in and hold on. Your money. Man, you, you get all stressed about it. You manage it this way. You do what you, you tithe when you can. But if you can't, if things are tight, you're not going to do it. You know, and you're like this. And you're holding on, holding on. And you, when, you know what you need to do? God, it's all yours anyway. All of it. Not just the 10%. 100% is yours. Tell me how to spend it. Tell me what to do. Tell me how to live my life. Maybe it's, oh, they wronged me. 
I am not forgiving them. I'll say hi to them. I'll be nice to them, but I, don't ask me to go anywhere with them or do anything with them. I am not letting go of this bitterness I have towards them. Yeah, keep holding on. Or you can just let go of it. Say, God, you forgave me. I can forgive them. What, what are you holding on to this morning? He says, for whoever would save his life and lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels. Are you living with gospel purpose in mind? If you do that, you will save your life. And what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his own soul? What is it going to profit Vladimir Putin if he gets to Ukraine and Poland and Chechnya and Serbia and Croatia and he just takes back the whole, that's his goal by the way. He was trying to put together the old USSR. Remember the USSR? He's trying to put it all back together. What will it accomplish if he makes the Soviet Union reborn and the dominant power in the world and he loses his own soul? And we could point fingers at him, but we're doing the same thing with our own little Ukraines. He said, for what can a profit a man, what can a man give in return for his soul? Don't just breeze by that question. What could you give in return for your own soul? We don't have anything to give. But God does. God gave his son for your soul. He gave everything, the, what, the very thing you could not give. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words. You see, people can say, go God, God, God. But as soon as they talk, talk about the word of God and sin and salvation, then people get upset. You, don't need to, you, you can't separate Jesus from his words. The two go together. They'd be like, you know, I love Tammy, but don't talk, Tammy. <laughs> Just stand there and look pretty. No, no, we can't do that, we, but we do that to Jesus. We put pictures of him everywhere like that, but we don't spend any time in his word. You can't, be, you can't separate the two. He says, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Remember Lance Armstrong? He won the Tour de France, which is like the biggest cycling race in the world. In America, cycling is, is like we, we ride our bikes and we have fun. But in the rest of the world, cycling is a big deal. It's like the Super Bowl, the Tour de France. He won it not just once, twice. He won it seven times. And when people thought of the Tour de France, they thought of Lance Armstrong. And he was so good that for years, he was accused of cheating. And he adamantly died. No, 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 I wouldn't do that. I'm just good and you're just jealous and all that stuff. And then finally, he gets caught doping. And sure enough, he had been do doing it all along. And he had been doing it... And he had all seven Tour de France's stripped away from him. And it was a big scandal. And he still would say, well, I just did it for you because you loved it when I won. And so I did it for my fans. And, and, it, and it was really all about that. And so Lance tried to gain the cycling world. But metaphorically speaking, I don't know if he's a believer or not, so I'm not trying to judge his salvation. But metaphorically speaking, he lost his, his soul. He lost it all in, in that trying to shortcut it and do it his way and do it the wrong way. You see, by cheating and holding on and having control of the way he was going to do it, he was able to cross the finish line in victory. But Jesus Christ, by denying himself and giving up everything, was able to stand in victory by raising again on the third day. Lance Armstrong held on. Jesus let go. And Jesus says, you take up your cross and follow me. And just let go. What do you need to let go of this morning? Colossians 2 says, And you who were dead in trespasses and, uh, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven how much? All of our trespasses. And how did he do it? By canceling the record of debt. Now watch this. This phrase jumped out at me this week. Jesus did not cancel the debt. He canceled the record of the debt. There's a difference. You see, if somebody owes you $14,000 and you just say, oh, that's fine, you know, I cancel the debt. Okay, you could do that, but that means you've lost. But if someone else steps up and pays the $14,000, now you have to tear up the invoice and cancel the record of the debt. You see, Jesus paid the price so that God could cancel the record of the debt that stood against us with the le its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it. He took that invoice and he nailed it to the cross, which was himself. We owed God a debt of sin that we could not pay. Jesus paid that on the cross for us. I want you to, to bow your heads with me, if you would, and let's just have some time where we're communicating with God. 
what, what is inside your hand that you're not willing to let go of? It might be your religion. That you've got God figured out this way. He looks like this, acts like this. He does this for me and does what I want. And you're not willing to let go of it. It could be the way that you do your marriage. You want it to be this way, this way, this way. And if it's not, you're going to be angry about it. It could be your finances. It could be a grudge that you're holding. Man, the list goes on, amen? Would you, right now, I want you to just make a fist. Would you do that? I want you to make a fist, and I want you to actually squeeze tight to where it's a bit uncomfortable. And your heads are bowed, your eyes still closed, just still thinking about what are you holding on to it. And I want you to squeeze it. It's there in your hand. Don't let it go. Don't let it out. And it gets uncomfortable the longer you hold on to it. How can you do that? How long can you do this? Your hand's starting to hurt. It's like, okay, Carrie, can we stop this? No. I want you to keep clenching on to what you are holding on to. Or you can do this. Just let go and open up that hand and feel the life flow back into that hand. This morning, would you have a conversation with God and, and just give up whatever you're holding on to? Don't be the monkey. Let go. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, today you can be saved. Would you let go of your trying hard to win God's approval and just accept Jesus' gift of salvation? You sinned. He died in your place. He took your punishment on the cross. You could trust him right now. Say, Lord Jesus, I want to make you the Lord of my life. I want to let go of my life and give it to you. I believe you died for all the things I've done wrong, all my selfishness, all my pride, all my sin, and that you buried it in your tomb and you rose again on the third day literally with life and eternity for all who believe in you. I make you the Lord of my life and the Savior of my soul. In Jesus' name, amen. If you made that decision to trust Christ, I, I want you to text me and let me know so we can talk about your new life as a new child of God. Um, we're going to do question and answer time. Uh, Amanda, would you come help me with that? That'd be great. And uh, so if you have a question, you can text it right there. If you're watching online, you can text it in. Question about anything, uh, whether something I preached on this morning, something you read in the Bible, whatever it may be, I'm going to let you use this one right here. There we go. All right. And I guess you need my phone. I do. There you go. All right. Let's see. Okay, first question. Why do Christians still struggle with sin, even though they have the Holy Spirit living in them? First uh, John 3, 6 says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Okay, good, good question. So um, let me answer the first part. So your soul has been redeemed, but... Your flesh has not been yet, okay? Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, it talks about how Jesus has delivered us, does deliver us, and yet will deliver us. And the word deliver means saved. So when he says, past tense, he has saved you or delivered you from what? The penalty of sin. The penalty has been paid. That's past tense. That's done. It's been nailed to the cross. Presence tense, you still struggle with the power of sin. So there's the penalty, but we still struggle with the power of sin. And there's a power struggle going on between the flesh and the spirit. You know, James talks about this, that our flesh and our spirit are constantly doing battle. And it says, he, and someday he will yet deliver us, which is mean when we, this body will be redeemed. So right now you've got your inner man who's being renewed day by day. It's saved. And you've got your fleshly man doing battle. And that's why Christians still struggle with sin. So someday, though, guess what? This body is going to be glorified. Amen? That's going to be exciting, right? You're going to look awesome. <laughs> you think you guys look okay right now, but you're going to look amazing in heaven. And you're going to be, and you will wake up every morning, and this body's not going to tempt you. This body's not going to say, I'll sleep in or snooze anymore or eat too much or do anything like that. Your body's going to be fully cooperating like your spirit man is inside, okay? But in the meantime, you still struggle. Now, the first John passage, there's two big interpretations. And, and one is that the sin is talking about the specific sin of unbelief that you can't unbelieve or be unborn again. The other is that it's habitual lifestyle. You can't keep persisting in the same sin um, as a lifestyle. So I like to use the analogy of a pig. What does a pig like to do? Wallow in mud and eat all kinds of nasty stuff, 
okay? If there's a dead rat in the corn, the pig's going to eat it. That's like dessert, okay? And they eat all kinds of nasty stuff. They like to wallow in mud and all kinds of worse stuff that's in the mud. They love that stuff that's in their nature, okay? I could take the pig out by a leash, take it to the car wash, power wash it down, make it all soap, put OxyClean all over it. I could paint its nails, put a ribbon in its hair, and it looks beautiful on the outside, but as soon as I take that pig off the leash, where's it going? Right back to the mud, okay? Because it's not changed on the inside. Now, I could take a sheep, and a sheep loves to, to stay cleaner. It doesn't like to wall in mud, but every now and then a sheep will fall in the mud, but it's not going to stay there, okay? Because its nature is different. First uh, Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. That's because there's been a change in the inside. Do we still struggle? Yes. But the pattern is we're making progress, we fall. We make progress, we fall. We make progress. Whereas if you're lost, it's like this, boom, 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 and you just stay down. And that's why there's all kinds of people who say, oh, I'm a Christian. It's like, yeah, but you're living with your girlfriend. You use the Lord's name in vain. You never read the Bible, and you hardly go to church, and you're a Christian? Sounds like you're still a pig, and I mean that nicely. Because your nature hasn't changed. If your nature changes because we live in sinful flesh, we'll still mess up every now and then, but it's not the trend. The trend should be upward where the inward man is being renewed day by day. Sorry, long answer to a good question. Um, this is, I guess, a comment. A great quote from Matthew Henry. God has wisely kept us in the dark concerning future events and reserved for himself the knowledge of them that he may train us up in a dependence upon himself and a continued readiness for every event prayed for you. Have a great day. Great. Thank you for sharing that. Um, let's see. It's a good quote, Rob, huh? I know, I know, but I'm saying it's a great quote. You can, since you're teaching about end times. So. Okay. Question. I'm frequently asked, who do we pay to, Jesus or God? Or who do we pray to? Whoops. I'm frequently asked, who do we pray to, Jesus or God? Uh, man, that's a really good question, and so I'm going to let Jesus answer that. The disciples came to Jesus and said, teach us to pray, because they were just amazed by his prayer life. And he said, okay, here's the manner, or here's the model that you ought to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven. Now, does that mean you can never pray, Lord Jesus, or Holy Spirit come, or whatever? No. But our primary direction is to who? It's to the Father, in the power of the Spirit, in the name of the Son. That's the model for prayer. Pray to the Father. Because the Father says, you know, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So who are we supposed to ask for the good gifts and the Holy Spirit? We ask the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name or the, for the glory of His Son. Okay? So we pray, you should pray, most of your prayers should be to the Father. Because that's the way, that's the pattern that Jesus set. Do you think there's a parallel between the sexual revolution of today and the sexual idolatry of the ancient world? If so, why do you think humans have always had an obsession with the perversion? That, that's, that's, um, that's a great, great, great question. And so, yes, that's been the trend all throughout history. This is not just something we're going through now. It goes through cycles. We had the sexual revolution in the 70s where women, like, you know, we want to sleep around like men sleep around, so we need birth control, we need all these things so we can do whatever we want. How did that work out for women? <laughs> Not very good. They end up having babies and guys running off, and guess who's stuck with the babies? You know, so the sexual revolution backfired in the 70s, and it's going to backfire here, but it's, it's Roman Empire fell, not because they were conquered from without. They became so morally debased that they just collapsed from within. And so it's, uh, it's, it's nothing new. And, and the reason it's such a big deal is because we're creating the image of God, and therefore, if God is the creator, our ability to create is one of the most beautiful things we do. And again, like I said earlier, it portrays the gospel. Every time a newborn baby comes out as a result of a sexual union, it's a picture of God's design. That's why we're so passionate about it. That's why we love it so much. But we've turned something beautiful into something grotesque and, and dirty. As, as Satan wants to do. God's the one that created it, not, not Satan. Where does nihilism fall in with beliefs, with those that are atheist or agnostic? Um, nihilism being the belief that we just die and we push up daisies, right? I think that's the word. Is that right? Ashley, help me. Someone. I've understood nihilism as I don't believe in anything. I don't believe in Right. right. Does it come from annihilation, though? or it does? Okay. So it, it, the idea of I don't believe in anything... And it, read it again so I can answer this properly. Sure. 
Where does nihilism fall in with beliefs, with those that are atheists or agnostics? Or okay, so ah, uh, theism, theism means a belief in God, theism. Ah negates it means I don't believe in God. Gnostic means to know. Ah negates it means I don't know, which is really the honest answer because there's really no such thing as an atheist because if God is living on Pluto, have you been to Pluto? Do you know he's not there? How can you say there is no God? Okay, and, I, and God doesn't live on Pluto, but I'm giving you an example. So if, if the world's information is this much, and you know this much, could God exist out here in what you don't know? Yes. So you can't say there's no God because you've not been everywhere and you don't know everything. But you could say, I'm not sure if there's a God, I, I, and you're, that would make you an agnostic, which that's more honest because you can't prove the other. Now, there's, only, there's two types of agnostics. There's honest agnostics, like I don't know if there's a God, but I'm willing to find out. And there's a dishonest agnostic because I don't know if there's God, and please, I don't really want to find out because if I find out, I'm going to have to change. And so that's the difference there. Um, I think I answered it. Any other questions? Um, this is another comment. Um, it's more like a praise. Um, so this person just wants to thank God in Revolution Church for the prayers for her sister, Olga Torres, who has been healed by God um, from complications of COVID. She's now healed and home with her loved ones. And she asked that the church pray for her daughter and her family, um, that they need God's healing power again because this certain person is back in the hospital. And God bless everyone. Okay, great. Great. All right. Thank you, Amanda. All right. In fact, let me have you do one more thing for me, Amanda. So let's go to the, the close. Everybody stand, and we're going to read uh, the scripture as a blessing and prayer uh, upon us, on one another. And Amanda, if you'll read that for us. Number 624. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.